0: A podcast from Tell. For the full experience, download the app on the App Store or Google Play. So another podcast that we're going to do for uh, the series of, of Tel podcasts, this time in conversation with uh, Professor Jamie Terani, um, anthropologist. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, can you say right. that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Started uh, sorry of your academic career in uh, Western Iran, doing a PhD there over looking at textile art mm. and sort of the transmission of the skills and, mm. and so forth, and then moving into narratives. That's right. And now yeah. sort of specializing on fairy tales, myths, and legends, and, and sort of straight up our street in terms of with uh, with uh, tell and, and so forth. And we'll, we'll come back to how we met uh, maybe later in the, mm. in the conversation, mm. but... Why don't you tell us a bit starting starting in old Persia and then uh, mm-hmm. and how you went from that into into the narratives and, and the storytelling Yeah, and so sure.
1: Well, thanks for having me on the pod. Uh pleasure to 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 be here and to be chatting with you again. Well, thank you for having Paris. us in your in your home as well. No, it's a, <laughs> no, nice it's a pleasure. To... Uh so, yeah, so my journey into narrative I guess was was uh quite a a long and winding one. It wasn't something that I um, had a particularly strong interest in as an undergraduate student or even as a postgraduate. Mm. Um, It's something that um, I got into much later in my career after initially uh, specialising really more on material culture rather than on verbal arts. So as you mentioned, I did my PhD fieldwork in Western Iran with uh, Nomadic. Mm. Groups there who um, have a very rich textile-based material culture. So think of you know these sort of colourful rugs, saddle bags, animal trappings, things like that. It's a you know it's a fantastic material culture if you're a nomadic pastoralist like they are, because they their economy is is based on rearing sheep and goats. Mm. So they have a plentiful supply of raw materials for weaving, you know, with the with the wool and what have you and the and the goat hair, which is what they make their tents from. And uh, you know, these tents are fantastic things really, because they are um they're sort of permeable insofar as um, you know, the the goat hair that they're made from is um very cool in summer. You mm. can sort of breathe in, in, in the tent very Easily, it doesn't trap heat too much. Uh, there's nice ventilation. But because the goat hair is very greasy, it prevents rain from getting in in, in winter. So so yeah, they've come up with this kind of really um, clever and, and highly adaptive material culture for the kind of lifestyle that they lead. Um, textiles obviously can be folded and rolled, so they can be taken with them on migrations. So these tribes travel twice a year traveling from their winter pastures to their summer pastures and back and it means that in winter they can be in the lowlands which are relatively mild Uh, and in summer they can go to the top of the mountains and uh, higher altitudes where it's much cooler but that's not where you'd want to be in winter because all your livestock would freeze to death so um, so yeah they've come up with this material culture that's very Kind of functionally um, sensible. I was about
0: to say beautiful and functional. Exactly, but But
1: they've turned this kind of functional um, material culture into also something that's kind of very richly decorative and Mm. and beautiful. And they have this, um, yeah, kind of you know um, you know whole aesthetic that's based around textile patterns that have, in some cases, got very ancient origins. And that was what I was particularly interested in. And like I guess for my without, PhD. I mean, without
0: thinking about it we all have very many of us have this kind of art and textiles in our houses right without yeah, yeah. knowing the the vast history and 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 details behind it
1: absolutely and a lot of the designs that originate in places like Iran have have been adopted and adapted right. in western design culture as well so mm. if you think of somebody like William Morris, for example, um, you know, the kind of great um, British designer. He was very inspired by Persian and Indian patterns especially. And so mm. like a lot of the designs that we now almost think of as being kind of very British, like Paisley, for example, actually has an Asian origin. So, mm. so I was actually really interested in trying to trace the roots of these patterns and the, and the techniques that these crafts were based on. Um, and by and, saying that the the you
0: you just said that the the textiles and the patterns and so on in Persia is, has been inspired inspired lots of English uh, mm-hmm. artists and so on, but then also what inspired them in in Iran and in Persia too was it inspired from different different other cultures and other places and so on as well even I mean further back,
1: very much so because um I think probably a lot of people don't appreciate that um. Iran is a very multicultural country, you know. Mm. So you have, um, you know, people speaking different languages, got different ethnic origins who coexist, and that's especially true of the tribal groups, where mm. you've got Arabic-speaking groups, Turkish-speaking groups, and actually very different Turkish dialects. Mm. So not like, Tur- like not like Turkish from Turkey, not Istanbulu Turkish, but sort of Turkish that's from. Uh, Central Asia originally. So a lot of these tribes came from Central Asia. Then you've got the Indo-European, Iranian um, uh, Farsi-speaking populations as well, and, and populations that speak dialects of Farsi that actually, you know, people living in Tehran wouldn't understand. So, um, so it's very ethnically diverse. And all these different tribes have got their own distinctive craft styles and designs and patterns. But they're all kind of also uh, mixed up together as well. And and you just get this kind of fascinating uh, melting pot of different designs. And that was what I was interested in in trying to trace. Um, Now, the way that I went about doing that was trying to um, follow the, um, the transmission of designs from generation to generation via the maternal line. Because these designs and skills... Are passed on almost like in a genetic fashion because they're learnt, weavers learn their craft from their mothers. So it's always mother to daughter transmission. So you can almost kind of trace the um, development of skills and designs in the same way as you could trace genetic genealogies and family family trees. trees, Yeah. And And it is very much like a sort of family tree uh, kind of approach that I took. Um, Was it familiar? Was it? sort of the the skill or a certain pattern was
0: very much related to that specific family and how it came down as well would you say?
1: Well uh, usually they were uh, the the patterns weren't necessarily uh, just just within a a certain family but certainly within a tribal group because the in uh, most of these tribes what happens is that uh, women when they grow up they'll uh, marry a man from another camp or village and then they'll move to that camp or village so you get Within a tribe, you get women actually moving quite a lot over the course of their lives yeah. and, and they'll go to a, definitely a different village or camp after they get married from the one in which they were raised. So they learn all these patterns from their, from their mums, but then they go to another camp and transfer it and transfer to, it to other yeah. women who are in that camp because they do learn from their neighbours yeah. and friends and, and, and you know the, their in-laws as well um so um so you get this kind of circulation of designs and patterns within a tribal group mm. but it's unusual for women to marry into other tribes so um that's why you tend to get these um yeah quite um coherent and distinctive tribal styles yep. um but they are related to one another so they're not completely that each tribe hasn't just kind of invented you know designs and patterns and skills out of the blue they're all inherited from, from ancestral yeah. tribal cultures that, that gave rise to this amazing diversity that we see today. Mm. Um, and it's um, still going. And that's still going. Yeah, very much so. I mean, so it's, um, it's changing. The, the uh, urban influences have definitely become much greater. Mm. You get in a lot of these uh, rural parts of Iran, you get urban based rug merchants who go out to the villages and camps and and actually commission carpets that are in particular styles, some of which may be alien to you know the the, the weavers who are making them. Mm. But because they're so skilled, they're easily able to replicate these patterns that they're they're asked to make. Um, and um, and that and its it, as well as then having an influence on on their own um, vernacular design culture as well. Mm. Um, but in a fairly limited way. So it, it tends to be certain kinds of textiles that will be influenced by these urban styles Um, other ones and I guess you know particularly ones that are more functional like sort of saddlebags um, tend to still be more traditional and are they
0: still being influenced now by maybe you said that the influence from there internationally has been fairly wide Mm -hmm. is there any influence coming back again on new design would you say as well
1: well i mean i think th- th- things like western demand has a definite influence yeah. on the well, has an influence yeah on so terms, yeah. yeah so you know sometimes um you know these uh, tribal groups are making textiles and 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 selling the textiles yeah. um and then they're not being bought by Changes. westerners because they're not seen as being authentic enough so yeah. there's this kind of peculiar thing where it's almost like um some of the tribes are having to Adapt to what westerners think is an authentic tribal design, um, so you get these weird kind of feedback loops going on. You
0: we we discussed earlier before this that mistakes in the weaving process Mm. is 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 creates sort of distorted corners for for instance, in a rug, yeah, and that is something for a westerner that sort of will will prove its authenticity and that it's that it's that it's real and and so on, but but not necessarily, it is, is mm. shouldn't really be a good thing. Mm. But because the Westerners want that, now you sort of have to fabricate mistakes yeah. Yeah. to make it more authentic. So
1: they're faking, they're faking mistakes, yeah. 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 Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But why, why what you're saying now is so interesting to what we're doing and, mm. and your journey from there as well is because it has so many parallels mm. to what you're spending a lot of time, your time doing now and what we are working on with stories. And mm. we've been talking a lot in previous podcasts and so on, about the transferal of how stories change mm. during time and areas yeah. and demographics and, and how it has moved and so on. Did, did you move from sort of that research in textiles? Because you said you weren't that interested in narrat- the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, well, not the narrative. Mm-hmm. You weren't that interested in. Is it narrative? Yeah. Narrative. yeah, um, yeah. Narratives. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't. Yeah. Um... But then did you see a. Was there a parallel that sort of you saw, okay, hold on, these stories, there's the same pattern here from from the art and textiles and patterns and over to stories. Is that what brought you into then looking at sort of the uh, how stories develop and how they go through changes and places and so forth?
1: Very much so. Um, so if, in order to study these textiles, um, I was... Um, taking methodologies that had been developed in evolutionary biology to, yeah. to, to make these family trees, to trace genealogies and, um, and and follow the descent with modification of a cultural tradition, which in that case was a textile tradition. But I was interested in um, seeing whether there were other things that I could apply those methods to. And, um, and folk narrative really kind of... Um, stuck out as something that could potentially be a really useful target for this kind of analysis because, um, you know, as we know, folk stories are passed on from generation to mm. generation. Um, they do have a kind of organic quality, uh, much as these textiles do uh, as well, in that there isn't a single um, intelligent designer, if you like, mm. of the uh, story. These stories don't have individual authors. They're products of generations rather than geniuses. Yeah. Uh, these are stories that kind of belong to everybody, that have been crafted by, you know, generations of storytellers. And it's like so, an in-
0: insidious sort of origin from it in a way.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's organic. I mean, I mm. see it really as a kind of organic process. And, and the, you know, over time what happens is that these stories evolve in a very literal sense um, because you get... Um, Uh, changes that are made when somebody retells a story, either because they've misremembered something, they've Mm. forgotten certain details, they might change certain details by accident, or sometimes they might do it deliberately because they've got an idea of how to make the story a bit better. Do you think it's
0: more by accident or more deliberately through the the years?
1: I think that probably the changes are often deliberate, but what Mm. people aren't in control of is um, whether other people... Uh, in, the, in the wider community will agree that that change is worth yeah. making. So this is where you get this kind of process that's a bit analogous to natural selection going mm. on, right? So you get the, the nature of folk stories is um, variation. That's, I think, the really important characteristic uh. of them, right? So there's no copyright. Every telling is a bit different, yeah. but some tellings are more appealing than others, right? Mm. So just as you get kind of genetic adaptations that can give um, an individual organism a a survival advantage. With stories, you get, and particularly with folk stories, you get changes that might be made to a story that make that story more catchy, more appealing, that make more people want to tell that particular version of the story Mm. than other versions they might have told. And what happens is that then that version becomes the, if you like, dominant strain in the population Um, And that's the one that gets then transmitted to the next generation. So this is how you get this evolutionary process happening over generations. So um, it occurred to me that this could be a really interesting area to try and apply these kind of evolutionary biological methods to try and reconstruct storytelling traditions and lineages Um, and um and it turns out actually that works really well and um that Mm. that that, uh, you can same patterns sort of arise between yeah absolutely yeah yeah and you can do it um you know at a kind of international scale just as with the textiles as we were saying before you know we know that a lot of these traditions don't even come from iran they've often been Mm. brought into iran by the ancestors of these tribal groups from places like central asia hundreds and hundreds of years ago, Mm. you get the same thing with stories. Stories often traveling, sometimes being brought with people as they migrate. Migration is definitely a very important factor in helping stories to spread around the world. Mm. But stories can also spread um, independently of people. People tell stories to their neighbors, they tell stories to people they interact with. um, And in that way, stories can spread from village to village, from town Mm. to town, eventually, kind of crossing whole countries and even even continents. Um, but obviously this is a kind of difficult process to reconstruct when you're just using the available written record um, because uh, most folk stories haven't been, mm. almost by definition, haven't been written down. They're passed yeah. on orally in the main. So this is where you get a kind of problem if you're using conventional literary or historical methods that there just isn't a very good record of of the past it's very difficult to try and yeah. trace you know well, where did this story come from mm. how did it change um which is where we can use other kind of statistical methods from biology that can help fill those gaps in just the same way that biologists have had to do with the history of life because huh. you know as we you know in the case of biological species only a tiny fraction the missing really. missing links in yeah. between. Um... We've, the fossil record, you know, there's only a tiny fraction of species yeah. that have ever existed have left any trace in the fossil record. Most of the time, the missing links are just that. We have no idea actually what these mm. species were, when they existed, what they looked like, how they behaved. We have to try and infer that um, from their descendants, you know, kind of basically taking the information yeah. about the past that's been preserved through the mechanism of inheritance from these genes that um, have been passed on from generation to generation. I mean, in our bodies, our genetic code um, tells the story of our yep. species history. And, um, and similarly, with things like folk tales, you can see how the little mutations in the story can be used to, to, to trace you know, where those stories came from, how they traveled, how they changed over time. And and place, but you have
0: very little to work from, really, because because as you said, they're oral stories. Mm. And if you can imagine how many million times one story has been told from one person to another, from 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 a father to to kids, and and so forth, and how few times it's actually been written down. Yeah. And if you look back in the past, it's yeah. only those very 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 few written down versions right. that you're going to get, which is like a drop in the ocean, really, yeah. in terms of the. The big picture of this, but I guess you can you can see you, the only thing you can see is that it mm-hmm. has changed mm-hmm. a lot, but hard to see the different the different changes and when and how it actually actually happened.
1: It's certainly difficult to see it, see it in the written record or the or the historical yep. record. Um, we just get snapshots from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a Greek myth, um, a medieval saint's tale. Yep. You know, we know that a lot of saints' tales. Um, were adapted from local folklore, they take a mm. sort of local culture hero and then turn that into a saint for the Christian church. Yeah. Um, so a lot of pagan stories that became Christianized, and that can be useful um, okay. data as well. Yeah. Um, and then in more recent times, known early modern writers, the great sort of fairy tale writers like Charles Perrault, or um, Italian uh, writers, fairy tale writers before mm. Perrault, like Straparola and Basile, also wrote down the kind of traditional yeah. folk tales and, um, and again. H. D. Anderson was very much influenced. Influenced, yeah. It, so sort yeah. of inventing stories, but, but yeah. taking motifs that were certainly, mm. you know, very folkloric. Um, so these can all provide us with clues, but it's about kind of filling in those gaps, and that's essentially been what my research has been attempting to do. And and where do you find how do you fill those gaps if
0: if you're not if if those are just beacons of direction sort of Charles Perrault and H. Anderson Grimm and so on where where do you search for this oral tradition and because it's 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 there and then it's gone right
1: so essentially it's about taking the variation that still exists in all mm. these different versions and um that variation um can provide a window into the past by when we use these sort of biological techniques to reconstruct family trees from where you've got like lots of different versions of a story. Um, So the characters will be different. There'll be Mm. slight differences in the plot. And we use these and we treat those variations as being um, similar to genetic mutations in biology. Mm. And um, what you do with these mutations is um, each mutation that's shared between two different versions of a story can be um, used to reconstruct a common ancestor because stories that are descended from a common ancestor will share mutations in common with one another, right? So the more closely related two versions of a story are, um, the more mutations they'll have inherited from a recent common ancestor. Hmm. The more um, distantly related two stories are, the fewer mutations that they'll have in common. So what you can do using that is um, you... what would a mutation be
0: just sort of in in sort of layman terms? like how would that come through a story? Like how would you find the mutation or, or well, how would it manifest itself?
1: So in, a mutation could be a change in the characters of the story. Mm-hmm. So for example, in something like Little Red Riding Hood, we find versions of Little Red Riding Hood where, she doesn't have a red hood. No. Um, we have versions where she's not even a single individual, but a group of sisters. Mm. Uh, or where the villain is uh, a wolf, or in other cases, might be a tiger. There's uh, you know, versions where um, it's a, um, a cannibalistic ogre. Mm. Um, so, and these can all be considered sort of you know, mutations, sort of changes 100%. in the story. Most of the modern day versions that we know of uh, when we think of Little Red Riding Hood uh, are really descended from the 17th century, uh, the the Charles Perrault version. So that's the sort of, you know, if you like, the the landmark um, Mm. kind of version that that was recorded at the end of the 17th century, which features the girl and the Little Red Hood. But even since then, there have been important modifications. So in Charles Perrault's version of Little Red Riding Hood, Um, She dies in the end. She gets eaten by the wolf and that's That's the end of the story. Um, Now, by the time the Brothers Grimm recorded their version in the 19th century in Germany, a version that is um, unquestionably related to the Charles Perrault version, Mm. probably very directly because his informant um, for that tale, for Little Red Riding Hood, was actually a French Huguenot immigrant to Germany. So, okay. you know, so it's a French tale. You can really yeah. trace it. Uh, so in that case, we, we actually have quite good yeah. evidence that there is a connection, but we can see further mutations have been introduced. So by the time that, you know, the Brothers Grimm were recording it, Little Red Riding Hood doesn't die. She gets eaten by the wolf, but then gets rescued um, by a passing huntsman who cuts the wolf's stomach open, takes Little Red Riding Hood out of it, yeah. and, and, and she survives. Um, In other versions, um, versions that um, probably predate Perrault's um, version where she dies, um, the little girl actually saves herself, so she doesn't require the assistance of a man. She's a much more uh, empowered heroine, um, and she tricks the wolf. Um, She tells the wolf, basically, uh, when she realises the wolf isn't her grandmother, she says, oh, I really need to go and pee-pee. And uh, the wolf sort of says, oh, you know, do you really need to? I mean, just, you know, do it in the pan. Yeah. And then she says, no, you know, maybe actually it's not a peepee. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's something else. And the wolf says, okay, right, in that case, just go out into the woods. But he ties a rope around her ankle. She goes out into the yard and, and then cuts the rope, ties it around a tree trunk. So the wolf is tugging this rope to see where she is and telling her to hurry up, hurry up, but she's actually fled through okay. the woods and and, and escaped. So um, now that version is probably actually older than the Charles Perrault version. And that's the kind of thing that we can actually tell when we reconstruct these family mm. trees, because we can um, you know um, see that on the branches of the tree, that, that I was able to reconstruct using these genetic methods, the Charles Perrault version, the Brothers Grimm version, and basically most of the kind of familiar versions of the tale today are all just on one branch of the Little Red Riding Hood so tree. much more. Uh... And if you look at the other branches, there are other things going on. And because there are other things going on, like her escaping herself, yeah. you know, not being killed, um, versions that we find in actually other parts of the world, including East Asia, um, where the heroine also doesn't uh, die, but manages to escape, mm. often with her sisters. Um, we know that they, you know from having this kind of family tree. We know that at the root of that tree, it was very different from the kind of more recent version that we see in the Charles Perrault version. So, um, so yeah, this is how you can start to leverage these methods to go beyond the physical written record yeah. that's available for the for the origin. It of sort of comes
0: to it comes to sight in a way when you sort of know where to look and, uh, exactly. and yeah. link the dots uh, yeah. in between. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you follow that. You get you just sort of you know follow the tree. Yeah. I mean, the tree becomes a kind of um, can can yeah be a, a guide as to you know what was going on in different parts of the world and different versions of the story and, yeah. and older versions of the story. And you just follow that trail all the way down to the root. And and obviously, the closer you go to the root, the less information you have mm. um, because you do get this kind of wastage over time there you know, are elements of the story that have probably just gone entirely extinct from, from the kind of very early versions. Mm. You know, there are lineages that, that that have just kind of hit dead ends and not gone anywhere. So I'm by no means saying that we can recover a full history of the story, but these methods can be useful for um, filling in some of the gaps in the written record. And, and that's essentially what I've been trying to use them to do. There's so many things within
0: what you just said that I want to Sort of jump into and mm. sort of and sort of maybe ask questions around, and and one of them is what you said with with Red Riding Hood mm. and the different versions. And here in sort of the the, the Charles Perrault the the Grimm versions, mm. well in the in the Charles Perrault she dies, mm. and in the Grimm version she's she's saved by a man, you know, mm. and and very often in in the European versions. Mm it's like a man's world and, and the, the prince yeah. saves the day, the the, the the woodcutter comes and saves the, the, the little girl who's helpless. But then you mentioned that in some other stories, she helps herself. Yeah. Would you say, or can I assume that the version where, because the stories and the mutations are are also a, a, a mirror or, or a, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's a it's a fraction. I'm not sure if that's the right word either, but uh-huh. but it's 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 it mirrors the the society that it comes from very much. And so. and yeah. in Europe, especially in that time, it was very much of a male dominant society. Mm-hmm. And the story of of Red Riding Hood, who mm-hmm. sort of helps herself and so, would you think that that came from maybe a society where women at that time stood stronger and and it was different mm-hmm. and and that. The whole sort of fact that you mentioned you said once sort of this long accumulated knowledge uh, yeah that was such a good way of saying it that there is so much to learn back from from these stories again to today right
1: yeah How yeah have uh, I mean you're hundred percent right and it goes back to the um, you know the, that analogy I drew with with natural selection yeah. um, so in in biology um, organisms have to adapt to their physical environment the ecological environment mm-hmm. um, in the case of stories, they need yes. to adapt to well partly to the human mind and what we find mm. kind of easy to remember and, and motivated to, to to you know pass on and, and transmit to others, but also to the to a social environment mm. as well. So, you know, stories usually have messages in them and um, the, the, the messages that are encoded in the stories have to be relevant to the society in which those stories are told and and retold. So, yeah, where you have a very patriarchal society, you're going to find stories often have got strong patriarchal messages. um, And and maybe in more egalitarian societies where there's more gender equality, you'll find that um, very much de-emphasized. Or indeed, you'll have um, other, if you like, what we might call today sort of more feminist messages being Um, promoted Mm. through stories. Now, of course, um, even in the oral versions of Little Red Riding Hood that predated um, Charles Perrault, um, those societies would have been, you know, pretty patriarchal societies. Mm. I think the really important difference is who is telling the story. So um, in oral tradition, a lot of these stories are told by women and they're passed on by women. So even if you're, you know, so if you're a woman in a patriarchal society, you want to put a little bit on your mark. So. Well, you can it's a way to subvert yeah. these sort of patriarchal norms as well, okay. right? So if, there you know, was
0: almost rebelling through stories and, and folktales. So, so so there's a big political message.
1: I mean in that a way. That and that always happens yeah. in stories. So we often find even, you know, cases where the same story might be told from a from a male perspective or a female perspective, mm. emphasizing different things in the stories or changing elements. Yeah. To you know, because people are always telling stories from their particular viewpoint, and often, even with the aim of trying to influence other people to see things in the same way as you see see them. I mean, this is why stories are such you know powerful instruments in you know in in you know whether it's religious evangelism or political messaging or or whatever. You know, we are very um, you know easily seduced by by stories. So stories. You know we'll have these messages and and the messages will reflect the values of the teller and um the values of the teller may not be the same as the dominant values of the society at large so by
0: saying that the the quality or or who the teller is makes a huge difference for makes what the story a huge will difference. be delivered to and and,
1: well. and and i think this also really underlines the value of um variation and diversity in in, mm-hmm. in stories so I think that one of the, um, you know, quite sad um, 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 events that happened with these, a lot of these fairy tales becoming primarily um, a literary um, like a genre written, rather than an oral genre, yeah, right. is that they became more um, controlled. They, They, you know, so basically what we see is this uh, with Little Red Riding Hood, all these really fascinating oral versions that, you know, often told by women, mm. you know, which feature this quite sort of, um yeah, empowered heroine at the heart of the tale. When these story, when the same tale suddenly becomes told by basically male writers like Perrault and then the Brothers Grimm later on and so mm. on, suddenly they become a very different kind of story and um, become much more patriarchal, become much more, Uh, I mean, people have said uh, uh, Jack Zipes, who's a, a, you know, very famous uh, scholar of Little Red Riding Hood, has talked about how the story. A scholar of Little Red Riding Hood. Yes. Yeah, very much. Well, I mean, he's a he's a folklorist fairy tale scholar, scholar of the. So that just shows Grimm. how deep it goes right yeah right. i mean he's written you know uh, you know books about little red mm-hmm. riding hood and um, one of the really interesting um you know um um theories that he proposes is that um little red riding hood becomes a story about victim blaming when it's in the hands of these male storytellers mm-hmm. right so it goes from this story of a uh, young girl who is um, targeted by a predator but manages to figure out what's going on and, and rescue herself, mm. okay? You know, so you can see all kinds of powerful resonances yeah. with you know, even society today. This is why this is such a great story that yeah. like, stood the test of time. Um, now, in the hands of people like Charles Perrault, it becomes a story about a silly little girl who yeah. doesn't know, who doesn't follow her mother's instruction, can't see the clear and present danger that this predator presents, And so ends up kind of um, paying the price for her own naivety and stupidity and it becomes a story so there's a sort of element of victim blaming going on so so starting off as maybe a story of motivation it
0: goes Mm -hmm. into a story of 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 fear like or or if you do this this happens sort of thing which is a very different message
1: yeah well or of of, and and of you know blaming her essentially Mm -hmm. for it so you know she's the one that gets herself into trouble yeah um, and she was, you know, naive and, you know, d- they don't go quite so far as saying she had it coming, but not far <laughs> from that. Um, and, and that's a very different kind of tale from the kind of, you know, you know, the, the versions that we find in, in lots of the uh, in oral traditions mm. and indeed in versions that have been told um, today. So you get sort of, you know, modern film versions that mm. are. Well, either directly based on the Little Red Riding Hood story or are very clearly kind of inspired by it. Like uh, there's a great version called Freeway, um, there's a uh, Hard Candy, which I think is really terrific, um, very kind of gory and, um, yeah, you know, sort of quite intense version of the story. And then um, recently the Hollywood blockbuster Red Riding Hood, which got loads of criticism uh, in the media for not being you know, authentic or not being kind yeah, of traditional. But, but there is no authentic. Exactly. But. And I think that's where, you know, people often miss the point about, you know, traditional stories mm. is that, you know, they, there is no single version, there isn't a copyrighted version, there isn't a, you know, an author, you know, who, you know, has the last say on, on how that story is supposed to be told. You know, these stories are supposed to vary, they're supposed to reflect, you know, different perspectives according to who's... Who's telling the story, and that's an incredibly valuable thing. And actually, you know, many ways these modern versions, particularly film versions of, of Red Riding Hood, and and of course I've forgotten, you know, haven't even mentioned the Angela Carter, famous Angela Carter feminist retelling, which also features an empowered heroine. Angela Carter was a feminist writer. And, and it, it, of course, makes sense to make them um, Little Red Riding Hood, you know, not dependent on yeah. a man to rescue her, but for her to be the kind of clever one who outwits the wolf. Um, and in in many ways, you could argue that these modern versions are, you know, a throwback to how the story always was. Even, yeah, um, even before, yeah, or, yeah. or maybe
0: it changed before that.
1: Guess, exactly. Well. So So if you want to sort of, you know, yeah. have an argument about authenticity, you could make the argument that actually... These versions are more authentic because than, they're older. Than the Perot version yeah. and the Brothers Grimm version and 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 so on. But I wouldn't even go there. I wouldn't even I don't think it's we not should a conversation, be a, really. we shouldn't be talking about yeah. authenticity in folktales. Yeah. Um that's my view. Maybe maybe these stories are more
0: like templates that it's it's up to us now to fit it, fit them to society mm-hmm. so that they become popular so that they can give the message that that they should be giving in yeah, yeah. in the time as well. And, and, and also what we're trying to do with with tell that you've been such a fantastic motivation for us as well because we are we are trying to do something that hasn't been done for, for, for through sort of or medium ever I guess mm. and and retelling these stories mm. to fit a a different society than Charles Perrault. yeah and and very often when our authors come in the Syrac they they've sort of Retold the story based on Charles Perrault. We often go by, like, no, 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 let's, let's, it's not based on Charles Perrault. It's, mm. it's, it's, it's based on the template of the mm. story, and we want to make it fit, fit today. If it's modern or it's still a classic, or what, what time it's set, doesn't really matter. But sort of yeah. celebrating the heroines and not just the heroes in the story and, and, and so forth. A podcast from Tell. For the full experience, download the app
1: on the App Store or Google Play.